According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Isaiah chapter 33 this morning. Isaiah chapter 33. Our 33rd week in this book has brought us to the 33rd chapter, and it means we're uh, getting close. How many chapters are in this book? 66? So we're about halfway? All right, Lord willing, rapture pending. The goal was to do one chapter a week, and uh, everyone laughed when I first announced it because, well, I laughed too. I mean, how in the world can we possibly teach a chapter per week? We're more accustomed to spending six years on a chapter and and working our way through that way. But in any event, uh, it's been a blessing. I've been enjoying it, and I trust that the flock has been edified. I believe our nation needs the message of Isaiah, and our nation needs the message of Jeremiah, that we've got some dark days ahead, and whether the Lord chooses to spare our nation, then we've got the Isaiah doctrine to make application of. If he chooses to destroy our nation, We've got the Jeremiah doctrine we better start making application of. And I believe that born-again believers ought to be equipped with the, the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so these two books, these two great prophets from the Old Testament, I believe are going to be powerful for our congregation and for believers beyond the impact here uh, for the days ahead. Woe to you. Woe to you. It's another happy message, as we've had several woe messages in these recent chapters, six of them actually in this section, taking us... Really, we're, we're in the midst of a section that goes down to the end of chapter 35, but we have uh, the sixth woe issued to the treacherous destroyer. Woe to you, O destroyer, uh, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him. And so we've got to do the homework to decide if this is two characters in view or one, if uh, the destroyer is somebody different from the treacherous. I believe it's all the same. This is the treacherous destroyer, and it is not the nation of Assyria, which you might have in your pericope heading, depending on the the English Bible you happen to be reading from at the moment. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's humble ourselves under the authority of his word and ask for his blessing upon our time in the truth today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. I thank you for the reminders as we worship you in song, Father, that we are pressing on the upward way, Father, that uh, this world is not our home, that, Father, uh, there's mansions that have been, that are even now being prepared by our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're looking forward to those things, and yet, day by day, so long as you delay, we have assignments set before us. And Father, we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful day by day. So on this day, Father, open the eyes of our understanding, humble us under the authority of your truth, guide us into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. We begin with a woe to the treacherous destroyer. Oh, look at that. That's the wrong slideshow. All right. Not to panic. Not to panic. We can open file location. And we can look below that. And we can get Isaiah 33. And we 
can show that one. Just forgot to update my shortcut. The sixth woe is to the treacherous destroyer. The sixth woe, we're in a section here where we have these woes in this portion, uh, and we've seen them already. We've seen a number of them already, but this one is to the treacherous destroyer. And every commentary you want to read, or many of the commentaries you want to read, will all say, well, this chapter is all about the fall of Assyria. And uh, we'll talk about that. We'll discuss the nature of the imminent threat that was hanging over Israel's head. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss the longer-term view, and if we're not afraid to think in angelic terms, and if we're not afraid to think long-term rather than short-term, then I think we will be uh, ready to consider other interpretive decisions for this destroyer. Does the Bible have anything to say about the destroyer? Does the Bible have terminology pertaining to the destroyer that is distinctly in an angelic context? Well, of course it does, and we know that. We know that Abaddon is named the destroyer, and we know that he unlocks the abyss during the tribulation, and we know that he has a role to play in eschatology, a role to play in the prophetic future. And so it's not outrageous to consider such a possibility in this chapter, and we ought to at least explore it as a possibility. And as we do, that's exactly what we find. We find that we have a rebuke here on Satan. We have a rebuke here on Antichrist. We have a rebuke here that is God bringing an end to the plan and program of Satan way ahead of any time that Satan even has the opportunity to launch his plan. All right? And uh, that ought to be an encouragement for us as well. When we see the direction this world is headed, when we see that Satan seems to have a free reign, he doesn't. He's under restraint still. He will have a free reign, though, after the church departs. The restrainer will be lifted at the rapture of the church. And even then, with no more restraint, Satan is still thwarted by the fact that God has been way ahead of him every step of the way. That he has a plan and a program that includes the end of Antichrist and the end of Antichrist's reign. And we see glimpses of that here in Isaiah chapter 33. So it says, uh, again, verse 1, Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, while others do not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. At the sound of the tumult, peoples flee. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about men rush about on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times. Amen to that. We are a culture that needs stability, and there's almost none to be found. But here it's promised. He will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. I'm going to stop there. We, we really have to lock in on verse 1, and then we can move on to verses 2 through 12. Um, but let's just pick up on this. See the contrast between verse 1 and the woe that's coming to this destroyer? And then the immediate prayer request in verse 2, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be our strength. I think our is better than their. Be our strength every morning. Our salvation also in the time of distress. See, as bad as things are getting, we should be in prayer. We should, we should have been in prayer all along. It shouldn't have taken it to get that bad before we got our prayer life engaged. Sadly, though, that's kind of typical. 
for, uh, for many of us. Uh, things get terrible, and then we start praying. All right, let's start with verse 1, though. The terms for destruction and treachery. We've already seen them. We saw them back in chapter 21. These two terms for destruction and treachery were previously employed in the anonymous oracle of Isaiah 21. That was an anonymous oracle. This is an anonymous oracle. It bugs me to tears that these commentaries won't accept anonymous oracles. They keep insisting on putting names to them, even though Scripture itself doesn't put a name to them. I'm great with the ones that are named. The oracle to Moab, great. Let's preach on Moab. The oracle against Egypt, great. Let's preach on Egypt. But the oracle to the land of whirring wings, let's leave it where Scripture leaves it. It is anonymous. It is not named. We may find in eschatology that it may even apply to the United States of America in a post-rapture fulfillment. All right? I'm not saying that in print, and you can't quote me on that. I'm not marketing a book to sell and, 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 and sensationalize all this stuff. All right? But it is left on that basis. Hold your finger here. Let's peek back and see that uh, anonymity is, serves a purpose. Calling things by certain names serves a purpose. Here it's the wilderness of the sea. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea it was back in chapter 18 that we had the uh, land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. And there's no problem. When he wants to name a nation, he can name a nation. In chapter 19, he names Egypt. And in uh, chapter 20, he talks about Ashdod and Assyria and Ashdod again. And he has no problem mentioning Assyria. We'll make that a point of study as well coming up. He actually mentions Assyria some 44 times. Uh, so there's no problem with Isaiah calling Assyria to account. I don't think that's what he's doing here in chapter 33. But in chapter 21 we had it. I lost my place. Let me get to chapter 21. Both of these terms. And it was about the treacherous. So in chapter 21, it's the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea as windstorms in the Negev sweep on. It comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Does it bother you that Satan is not yet thrown into the lake of fire? Does it bug you because, man, he's been judged already? Why is he still roaming like a roaring lion? Why is he still prowling about? I would love it if uh, he was bound. Well, not the time yet. doesn't serve the Father's good purpose yet. And so the adversary is yet prowling about. In fact, it'll get worse because the adversary will be unrestrained for the coming tribulation. All right, so here's the treacherous one and the destroyer. And we had some comments there in chapter 21. That context, as well as this context, that is the chapter 33 context, appears to pertain to the tribulation of Israel where the Lord allows destruction in the day of the Lord. He allows it, but he sets boundaries. He sets very clear boundaries and says, all right, this is it. Now you are done. No more. Because he comes and he personally puts an end to it. And we see it here again in, in chapter 33. As soon as you finish destroying, you will be destroyed. Okay? And Satan might want to say, oh, I'm not done yet, I'm not done yet. But Jesus Christ, the conqueror, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will say, oh yes, you are done. Jesus Christ has come to put an end to uh, everything that Antichrist is trying to achieve on this planet. 
So we're dealing with the tribulation. This chapter is looking ahead to the great tribulation of Israel. This chapter is not pertaining to any judgment that King Hezekiah is afraid of or any, any military invasion by the Assyrians. That's, that is coming. We, we've got a whole segment of Isaiah in chapter 36, 37, 38. There's a whole segment in Isaiah that really has a parallel with 2 Kings, a parallel with the narrative of Hezekiah, the king, and the, the great fear of Assyria and the, the, the miracle that allowed Hezekiah to live an extra 15 years. And there's a lot of things that we're going to see in the story of Hezekiah that's repeated in in our book. But the commentaries that try to reach forward three chapters and try to inject that here into chapter 33, I think are doing a grave disservice to the text. Let's leave it where it belongs. Leave it as an anonymous oracle. Let's leave it in an angelic context. And let's talk about the overall plan of God in bringing his kingdom to this earth. And that's what we'll see by the end of this chapter. We have a preview of the righteous reign of Jesus Christ in verses 17 through 24. We've got uh, the things that that, uh, Israel is looking forward to, that all believers should be looking forward to in terms of perfect righteousness on this earth. So the context of 21, the context of 33, appears to pertain to the tribulation of Israel where the Lord allows destruction in the day of the Lord. And he allows it not for Satan's purpose. He allows it for his own purpose. Satan wants to inflict all that wrath so that he can destroy the Jewish people. God permits him to apply all that wrath, but it's for an entirely different purpose. It's not to destroy the Jewish people, it's to humble the Jewish people. It's to discipline the Jewish people. It's to bring them to the point where they will accept their Messiah. They will look upon him whom they crucified, and they will be humbled to call out to the God of their salvation. They have to be brought to the point where they can recite verse 2 here where Israel can say, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. All right? And that will take the discipline they're going to be placed under. This day of the Lord destruction, uh, we've already looked at it in Isaiah 13 and verse 6. You might recall in Isaiah 13 and verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. The same term we're looking at today. The same Hebrew term that we're looking at today. By the way, Shadad Similar to Abad, there's some related Hebrew forms and so forth, but destruction, you, know, you think about the, the wrath that's applied and the, the power that's applied. Anytime you're dealing with Shadad, uh, who better than El Shaddai, right? Who better than the Almighty, the one who has it all to uh, apply the wrath or apply the destruction that he's capable of doing. So that is, uh, the day of the Lord is a day of destruction, according to Isaiah 13:6, also according to Joel one thirteen, The day of the Lord is a day of destruction. And you guys know this. It doesn't take a whole lot of uh, proof. don't need a great number of proof texts to illustrate the day of the Lord is a day of destruction. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. All right? And that's, again, what we deal with there. That's Joel 1 in verse 15. Now, most commentaries identify this chapter's object as Assyria. I reject that. Um, As I've already identified, it's anonymous. It's called uh, the destroyer and the treacherous one. And it seems to be a personal woe, not a national woe. Isaiah has no trouble identifying Assyria. In fact, he names Assyria 44 times in his 66 chapters in this book. has no trouble identifying Assyria. But he does not use the term anywhere in this chapter. Not in the prologue, not in verse 1. Nowhere in chapter 33 is Ashur, in the Hebrew, is Assyria, uh, spoken of. So I reject the interpretation. I believe with the hindsight of the New Testament, 
with the advantage of New Testament hindsight, we can identify this treacherous destroyer. We understand our adversary, our adversary, the devil. Specifically, this is a rebuke against Satan and his agents. All right. So we can apply this woe upon him personally. And then by extension, his prime agent in the tribulation, that would be Antichrist. When Antichrist is unveiled, he will come under this wrath. And there's a reason why. All right. He's been judged already. And we, we understand we've done studies on the fall of Antichrist and his judgment from Daniel chapter 7 and other related passages there. The treacherous one. The one that comes as his great hero, this great man of peace. He's a white horse rider, right? He comes in Revelation as the true hero. And all the world's amazed and they're all singing his praises and they're all, I'm sure he's Time Magazine's man of the year. I'm sure he even outdoes Bruce Jenner in some of the media publications that are out there and all that. And Obama, you know, that'll be a fading memory by then. That the whole world's going to go, ooh, this guy is just wonderful until he's unmasked as the Antichrist because he's the treacherous one. He's the one that betrays the Jewish people. He's the one that stops their animal sacrifices. He sets himself in the temple, displays himself as being God. He demands worldwide worship. And the world will do it. They will follow after him. And uh, the things that are coming up in the tribulation, we've studied those things before. There's not a problem with the advantage of New Testament hindsight to identify this treacherous destroyer as Satan. I think even without the New Testament hindsight, I believe Israel should have identified by the language of this chapter itself, the language of treachery, the language of the treacherous one, to to view this chapter in an an angelic context like we do with chapter 14, like we do with with Ezekiel 28, like we do with several of of the passages from the major prophets. And, uh, and even the minor prophets, Zechariah, we look at those passages in terms of their angelology. And even the rabbis, the, the commentaries from the Old Testament, they, I think they identified them in that respect as well. Now, the faithful within Israel are not fearful of the destroyer. I want you to understand that. We had one verse where woe was pronounced upon the destroyer, basically saying, you're done now. Then in verse 2, what do we see? We see the faithful within Israel that are coming together in corporate prayer. We see, O Lord, be gracious to us. See the plurality on that? It's plural. This is corporate prayer. We have waited for you. And this will come about in the tribulation when Israel will be oriented to who their Messiah is. See, to this day, Israel is still under blindness. Israel is still under a partial hardening. You ask a typical Jewish person today, the bulk of them would say, oh, no, no, that, that you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a, he was a false Christ, or he was a, he was a false prophet, or he was a blasphemer, or he was executed. The Talmud says he was properly executed, and uh, so forth. But in the tribulation, they will finally identify, oops, <laughs> wait a minute, We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. Wait a minute. Messiah came. Messiah came in the first century and we put him on a cross. The Jewish people have to come to grips with that. And they have to call out to the God, to the God of the universe, the God of Israel to save them, the God whom they crucified when he came the first time. How much humility, how much humility does that take? All right, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation also in the time of distress. As I said, there's a manuscript question in verse 2, whether it's their distress or or their strength or our strength. I, I keep it in the first person every time. Our strength every morning, our salvation also 
in the time of distress. The faithful within Israel are not fearful. They are waiting upon the Lord. See, a remnant of believers is waiting upon Yahweh to be gracious and save them from this time of distress. I try to tell people today, are you worked up about Antichrist? Why? Don't be worked up over Antichrist. We won't be here to see him anyway. If he's alive on the planet today, I hope he is. That means that we're that much closer to the trumpet sounding and, and you and I get to launch out of here, okay? So I hope he's alive on the planet today, but I'm not going to waste a lot of time trying to identify him or prove who he is or prove who he might be or any of that. It's, it's ridiculous because he's under restraint until the restrainer is lifted. Then he can be revealed as per Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Somebody tries to make a case that, you know, he's alive today and this is who he is, it's ridiculous can't prove it. And I believe biblically they they can't even possibly be right until he is unveiled after he has his own revelation after we depart. So I'm not worked up about Antichrist. Neither are these faithful remnant here. This faithful remnant here, they've got armies surrounding Jerusalem. Everything looks hopeless, humanly speaking, but they're calling out to the God of their salvation. And they are calling out for God to be gracious They're not claiming that they've earned or deserved anything. They're not claiming that, oh Lord, save us. We've been faithful. They're saying, oh Lord, be gracious. Because we haven't earned this. We haven't deserved this. Israel has to come to the humility of saying, we don't deserve this. We deserve just the opposite. But be gracious. Be gracious. So it's described here in uh, verse 2. Also verse 6. He will be stability, the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. And here's where we have it. And they are waiting, absolutely waiting for his deliverance. This, by the way, is what was David prophesied of in Psalm 118. So Isaiah is not alone to view the tribulation of Israel as a time of their humbling, and a time where they will accept their Messiah. David also spoke of this in Psalm 118. You may join me there in Psalm 118. Keep your finger in Isaiah 33 if you'd like, or your ribbon or bubblegum wrapper, whatever you have. Psalm 118. And we can take a look at this. This uh, There's so much in this. Jesus cited this. It is an assumption on my part that this is a Davidic hymn. David is not in the prescript of Psalm 118. Notice, though, (coughs) all nations surround me. Here's verse 10. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Isn't that great? Hey, we're surrounded just where we want them. All nations surrounded me. Okay, I win. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surround me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You got the point here? The psalmist is excited about winning. And just when he's surrounded is when he knows he's on the verge of winning. Verse 13, you pushed me violently so that I was falling but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. 
the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. What a contrast. You can just envision, here's the city surrounded and the besieging armies are out there in their camps and their tents. And they have their own songs that they're singing. But believers with faith rest, believers inside the siege, they've got their songs that they're singing too. And the songs they're singing are glory to the God of their salvation. Um, So there's some other things here. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Thank God for that. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. And think how vivid this is. You know, you're withstanding a siege. There's armies all around you. The last thing you want to do is open those gates. You want to keep those gates shut. But the psalmist, what's he thinking about here? If it's not David, okay, it's somebody else. But the psalmist here is thinking, man, there's whole other gates. I'm waiting for those to be open. I want to enter into glory. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. Now notice, this is the context where we get the, the, the stone which the builder rejected. This is the prophecy in Psalm 118 where we have messianic anticipations of how this deliverance is going to come, and it's going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I could spend my whole hour in this. I love this chapter. The uh, stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone This is the Lord's doing, marvelous in our eyes. Those who had eyes to see it were delighted to see the stone. And those who hated stumbled over the stone. And that's also portrayed here. So this is the Lord's doing, marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we quote that verse a lot. We cite that verse a lot. We think it applies today to Sunday, June 7th, 2015 A.D. But... Okay, when you, when you claim it on that basis, you are claiming it on a secondary basis because the primary basis is the day of the Lord. It's the day when the stone comes forth to deliver his people Israel. On the day when Israel says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Okay? And I find so much harmonization between verse 25 there and what we're studying today in, in Isaiah 33. Do save. All right? Do save. And that's, that's what Hosanna is all about. Okay? When the children were singing Hosanna on Palm Monday, right? Jesus was walking in, on, riding into Jerusalem, humble on a colt. And here's the children. They're singing Hosanna. And the Pharisees are saying, shut those children up. <laughs> shut them up. Shut them up. Quit singing Hosanna. Hosanna. Well, that's do save. Hosanna. Save now. It's a citation from that verse right there, okay? It's a recognition that that humble man riding on the cold is not just a man, that's the God-man, that's our king, that's our savior. And the children were welcoming their king and the religious leaders were plotting his death, okay? That's why he can't come back in second advent until the nation itself is humbled. The nation itself has to say this. So do save, we beseech you. Do save, as he says here. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so we have the promise that's here. In fact, when Jesus was teaching this, let's look over at Matthew 23. Jesus himself was prophesying of this. Matthew 23, 39. And just in case you think 
Now this, this came four days later, okay? The triumphal entry is in chapter 21. <laughs> Just in case you're fuzzy on your, your sequence in Matthew. The, uh, in chapter 21 is when the children, verse 9 is when the children are screaming, singing, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The children identified him. Those who were humble identified him. Not the religious leaders, not the prideful. And so in chapter 23, his message of judgment, you know, just consider. He's going to be on a cross within, I think, isn't this Thursday, the Passion Week, or Wednesday, the Passion Week? He's going to be on the cross within 24 hours of this, of this chapter. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. You were unwilling. Okay? So where does the sovereignty of God meet the free will of man? Where does sovereignty meet human volition? And how does God allow for human volition even in defiance of His will? How does God allow under permissive will for those to accept His gift, for those to reject His gift? And even if He desires to gather Israel, they're having none of it. And He has to let them go. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. They have rejected their Messiah. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to rise on the third day. And he's not going to stick around to usher in the kingdom. He's going to ascend to his Father and be seated at God the Father's right hand. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. There's going to be a delay. There's going to be a time frame in between first advent and second advent. We know now, of course, it's the church age. We know now about the, uh, the New Testament and the unfolding of the bride. We know all that now. They knew none of that then. They knew none of that then. Well, how long is that gap going to be? You know, it's been 2,000 years already. Isn't that long enough? Okay, well, not quite 2,000 years, from 33 AD to 2015. So about 18 years shy of that. Nearly 2,000 years. How long is it going to take? Well, how long is it going to take Israel to be humbled? Because in verse 39, he says, I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel must accept the doctrinal reality of Psalm 118.25. The religious leaders, the political leaders, the nation at large must call upon him whom they pierced. Only then. Will Jesus Christ return in second advent to rescue them from Antichrist? To rescue them from Satan? Waiting is an important theme in Isaiah. Not only in chapter 33, it's going to come back in chapter 40, it's going to come back in chapter 49, come back again in chapter 51. Waiting is a powerful theme in Isaiah. You probably have it on a refrigerator magnet or a, a piece of wall art or some kind of a thing with an eagle. Or you see it in my signature line from any email I might have sent to you at a certain point. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Okay? Isaiah 40 in verse 31 is a great verse as it applies to waiting. Likewise, Isaiah 49 speaks of waiting. The nation has to learn to wait. I don't know about you, but lessons on patience just seem to take forever. And it would be nice if we could just hurry up and learn these lessons. Isaiah 49. 
Kings will be your guardians, their princes, princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth. They will lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. No one who ever waits upon the Lord is ever disappointed. You can't go wrong serving Jesus Christ. You know, everybody I've ever met that's expressed all kinds of regrets in their life. I've yet to meet somebody who really regretted serving Jesus Christ. That's 49.23, 51.5. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me. And for my arm, they will wait expectantly. See, that's why our waiting is, is described in terms of eagerness. And that's why hope is defined as positive anticipation. Because we are waiting for something we know with a certainty has been promised from the Lord God of the universe. It's been promised from the God who cannot lie. And so we can wait and we can wait eagerly. We can wait with a positive anticipation. And we're not going to lose heart. We're not going to be foolish and stop waiting like those virgins that failed to prepare their oil in their lamps. All right? That's a different passage. Waiting is also an important theme for the New Testament, for members of the church. And I would encourage each one of us to learn these scriptures as well and to develop aspects of waiting. Understanding that it's in fact, it's a definition of what the church age is. You and I are waiters. Did you know that? I used to be a waiter. <coughs> the high school, I was a waiter. Coco's Family Restaurant. For three years, I was a waiter. But we all are. We're waiters. We are waiting for His Son to be revealed from heaven. And day by day, we are looking for that blessed hope. If we're not looking for it, we've got a problem. We're maladjusted in our doctrine of imminency. And uh, I think it then becomes a short slide into uh, lukewarmness, a short slide into sloppy Christianity. But if we're diligent, if we're waiting, if we're looking, if we're eager, I think that's a a great motivation for godliness and for urgency and diligence and, and everything else. Church age even begins with waiting. In Acts 1-4, right? The disciples were told, Jesus says, I'm going to go to heaven now. You're going to stay here in the city and you're going to wait to be clothed with power from on high. And they had to remain 10 extra days in Jerusalem until Pentecost, until the Holy Spirit would descend on May 24th, 33 AD. Because Jesus departed on May 14th of of 33 AD. And so he ascended to his Father and 10 days later, the Holy Spirit descended and the, and the apostles in the upper room, about 120 believers in the upper room received the Holy Spirit. And the church age began on that day. It began with 10 days of waiting. And the whole church age ever since then has been waiting. Waiting for Christ to return. Waiting for the trumpet to sound. Waiting to be snatched up in the clouds. You read how Paul defines the doctrine of the rapture. He expected to be a part of that generation. He said, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. The Apostle Paul was convinced he was the rapture generation. I'm convinced we're the rapture generation. I think every generation between Paul and us, have those that know the doctrine, have believed that they are the rapture generation. And if I die and go to heaven, I hope my children believe they're the rapture generation. Romans 8.25. You want some verses on waiting? Romans 8.25. I could actually, it should be 23 through 25 in there. 
Not only this, but we also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. You know what? I mean, you're saved. You got the Holy Spirit. Great for you. But that's simply the first fruits. That's the deposit. That is, that's just a, a down payment for everything we're going to receive in phase three. So we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Yeah, that weak, weak link in the program here. <laughs> my soul is redeemed. My spirit is made alive. But not one thing happened to my physical body the day I got saved. I didn't get a resurrection body back then. I still don't have a resurrection body. Still got this body of death. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? Maybe like sitting around 24 years later saying, boy, I hope Sharon says yes when I ask her to marry me. Well, duh. She said yes 24 years ago. Why are you waiting for something that's already done? We're waiting for the resurrection body. We're waiting for phase three glory. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Day by day by day. Okay? What a, what a delight. <laughs> i never forget, my son was three years old, four years old maybe, my oldest, my firstborn. And he was in the back seat of the, no, he hadn't been older than that because I didn't buy the Mustang until about the convertible in 2000. And uh, anyway, we're, we had the top down, we're cruising around Austin and there were some clouds up there. And my son said, I think I see Jesus. I hope you do. <laughs> Hold on. Well, we're not getting snatched yet. It must be something else. But that's the kind of imminency. See, we want to have, that's why the convertibles are great. I had a mechanic. He called it, um, there was an automobile mechanic from Oklahoma City. He called that a rapture-ready vehicle. All right, so it is. But we are waiting eagerly for it. We are waiting eagerly. We're disappointed. Man, that was an alarm clock this morning instead of a trumpet. Bummer. Okay, turn off the alarm clock. Thank the Father. Father, you watched me through the night. You woke me up. Here's a new day. It's a day on earth, at least as of now. I want to serve you today. We should be waiting eagerly. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Another passage on waiting. Keeps us from being judgmental towards one another. Condemning one another. Looking down our long snooty noses. Okay? Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. He's going to do a far better job of you anyway in terms of what it is you're trying to condemn. You know, the, that brother, that sister, whatever, it's gonna, they're going to answer for it at the judgment seat of Christ. So let's just wait till then. We'll bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. So there's something else we're waiting for. How about that? Judgment day. And let's be praying for one another in the meantime. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven. And boy, to a church like Philippi, that's going to have an impact. Because Philippi was different than Thessalonica, different than Berea, different than Apollonia or any of the other Macedonian cities. Philippi was, had citizenship rights under the Roman Empire. Very proud of that citizenship status that Philippian citizens had within the Roman Empire. And so here's the Apostle Paul who says, guess what? Our citizenship is in heaven. How do you like that? from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what He's going to do? 
who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. We don't know very much at all about what the resurrection body is going to be like, except it's going to be like His. Okay, so we see kind of kind of the stuff He did in His resurrection appearances. You know, I mean, we can pop into locked rooms and scare people. All right, maybe I'm looking forward to that. But no, what? <laughs> it's bigger than that. Okay, we will be conformed to His image, conformed to His glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And so finally, with a a redeemed soul, with a living human spirit, and with a glorified body, we get to be complete in Christ. What a day that's going to be. Looking forward to that. Are we waiting for that? It says we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be our daily expectation. We don't want to just... See, here's the danger. We just kind of start to think, well, that's years from now. Well, that's later. That's down the road. Well, that's, that's 50 years from now. You know, and then we start getting lazy. And we start to drift in our own carnality. And we lose the focus on diligence. Because we think, oh, we got all this time in the world. The one soldier in our unit that was killed was, uh, when I went to Desert Storm, we, we lost a soldier. And um, this last Memorial Day, there were a lot of pictures of him posted. And some of my old Army buddies were bringing up their memories and whatever. And um, his attitude was, because we were talking about eternal life and dying and all that. They had told us in the barracks at Fort Hood, they said, the official estimate is 20% casualty rate. That we're going to go to Iraq, we're going to fight the Iraqis, we're going to try to rescue uh, Kuwait, and we expect to take 20% casualties. And so there's five of us sitting around our room in the barracks, looking, saying, well, that's one in five. And which one of us isn't coming back? And we had a chance. And it turned out it was it was... Hans, a Christian, Richard Avey, okay? He even had Christian for a middle name, but he wasn't a Christian. And he was 18, handsome guy, just, you know, everything, having fun in this world. And he said, I'll get religious when I'm older. Word for word out of his mouth, I'll get religious when I'm older. And he died on my birthday in 1990. Or no, 1991, which was, and anyway, he's the one that didn't come back. Get religious when I'm older. You don't have, you fool. Tonight your soul is required of you. What Jesus said there. Tonight, today. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Thank the Lord that you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What a definition. Are you saved by grace through faith? You have been delivered from your former futile manner of life. You have turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And I think there's an awful lot of people that done the first part, they got saved, but they're not doing the second part. They're not waiting for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They've never been taught the doctrine. Or even worse, they've been taught the wrong doctrine. They've been taught out of the different systematic theologies that say there is no rapture. All right. Waiting is important. Jerusalem will go from being the plundered to being the plunderer. They go from being plundered to being the plunderer. Described here, it'll be described again in chapter 53. It's described again by Zechariah in Zechariah 14.1. 
They get to be the plunderer. Kind of fun how all the armies gathered around Jerusalem. Thank you for bringing us all those weapons. (laughs) All right. (coughs) They're actually going to spend a significant time burning weapons. Once the Prince of Peace rules over them, they won't need weapons. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In any event, Isaiah 33, 4, 53, 12, Zechariah 14, 1. But isn't this just like God who turns cursing into blessing? Who you go from being the plundered to the plunderer? The one that's cast down to the victor? Okay. He exalts those that are brought low. He brings low those that are exalted. That's what God does. It's definitional of who he is. I've got this chapter broken down into four parts, and we've covered two of them so far. could take a Sunday, I think, for each one of them. All right, I'm not going to turn to those. You can turn to those. Isaiah 33, 4, 53, 12, and Zechariah 14, 1. But keep in mind, when you're in Isaiah 53, what are you dealing with? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And he gets booty, okay? Booty. If you know what booty is. I had to define booty for somebody the other day. Booty. It's plunder. It's, it's, the, it's the loot. It's the treasure that you gain as a conqueror in the battlefield. That's your booty, okay? Not the shake your booty booty. That's something different. <laughs> Isaiah 33 now, 13 through 16. 13 through 16. The arrival of the kingdom is a terrifying thing to sinners. The arrival of the kingdom is a terrifying thing to sinners. Oh, sinners in Zion are terrified. Yeah, they better be. Okay. Isaiah 33, 13 through 16. The arrival of the kingdom is a terrifying thing. In fact, this, the rest of this chapter, chapter 34, chapter 35, great news for the redeemed, scary stuff to, uh, to the enemy of God. All right? Because they've, they've kind of been on the, they've been, they've been enjoying their party all this time, but it's coming to an end. The King of kings and Lord of lords is coming and he's going to be dealing with them. The arrival of the kingdom is a terrifying thing to sinners. You who are far away, hear what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. So that's pretty much everybody, isn't it? (laughs) If you're far away or if you're near, God wants everybody to know what's about to happen. Acknowledge my might. Sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? See, when he comes and he comes with fire, remember our God is a consuming fire. When he comes in judgment, second advent, he's coming with fire. First advent, he came in humility, the babe in the manger and all that. Not second advent. Second advent, he is a consuming fire. And he's going to destroy his enemies and he's going to purify his people. And the fire they're going to get on this earth is just a taste of what they've got for all eternity in the lake of fire. He who walks righteously, verse 15, and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil, he will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. 
All right, so the believer who's walking in righteousness, the 144,000, the faithful remnant, those who don't take the mark of the beast, those that are trusting in the coming of the Lord, boy, they are set securely. Everybody else is doomed. Everybody else is doomed. All right, so the arrival of the kingdom is a terrifying thing to sinners. The smelter's fire is designed to purify sinners for the kingdom. Designed to purify sinners for the kingdom. And we've got the fire here. Who can endure it? We've got the message in Malachi 3. In fact, it's a message that closes the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Oh my, where does the time go? And it's because of that, this is why the kingdom forerunners are preaching repentance. That's why John the baptizer rises and preaches repentance. He's telling a bunch of Jewish sinners they better straighten up because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why uh, we understand the gospel of the kingdom is repent, whereas our gospel is believe. Okay, There's a distinction to be found there. If you want more on that, I recommend our Life of Christ series and the distinction between the Great Commission and the Great Cognition. The distinction between what it is to make disciples and what it is for the Jews in the tribulation to usher in the kingdom. But there's a reason why John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's talking to these prideful Pharisees and said, my message isn't for you. But for believers, the message for believers is, Get your, spiritual life, uh, get your spiritual life in order. Get your walk together because the kingdom is about to unfold and your present walk is not worthy of the kingdom. So that repentance message is to carnal believers that need to shape up and, and get ready for the kingdom. So whether you want to talk about John the Baptist, if you want to talk about Elijah in the second advent, the prophecies of Malachi, I would encourage you to not only read Malachi 3, 1 through 3, but also Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And then you'll find out about the herald, the forerunner of the kingdom. Then you can go to Luke chapter 1, where John the Baptist's father is singing to him. And then uh, Matthew 3, Matthew 11, when Jesus is singing the praises of, uh, of John the Baptist. I just don't have time to get us through there. Well, okay, we can peek it a little bit. Malachi 3. I'm just going to keep preaching until I see Molly come back to play piano for us. Malachi 3. Verses 1 through 3 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, which is another way of saying Malachi. I'm going to send Malachi, my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's his battlefield name. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? This is the question they're asking. How can we endure this in Isaiah 33? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. When Jesus comes to usher in his kingdom, believers, in the Jewish believers in Israel have to get very repentant very quickly. So they can be prepped for their kingdom. Gentiles, of course, are going to be killed, and unbelievers and sent to the sent to hell. Chapter four, verses five and six. 
Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Old Testament ends with a curse. How about that? Why do you think they set an empty place at the table for Elijah every time a Jewish family has their Passover dinner? Well, they have the expectation that Elijah is coming. Okay? All right, Luke chapter 1 is the birth of John the Baptist, and his father has some things to say there in keeping with Malachi chapter 4, Matthew chapter 3, Dennis, Luke chapter 1. Let me grab these really quickly. I keep saying that, don't I? I must have got one more point to give you, verses 17 through 24. All right, well, John the Baptist was the fulfillment in first advent, and had they accepted the kingdom, he would have been the complete fulfillment. But because they rejected their kingdom, uh, Elijah is coming, and he will have a second advent role. But Luke chapter 1, verse 17, here's Zechariah singing to his son. The angel tells Zechariah, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How can Jesus Christ enter his kingdom if his people aren't prepared for him? Same chapter down to verses 74 through 79. This is the song. You child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. They weren't interested in that. Forgiveness of our sins, salvation, are you kidding? As far as Judas Iscariot goes or Simon the Zealot or most of the nation of Israel, the only salvation they wanted was to throw off the Roman Empire. All right, political deliverance, all they were interested in. And here's John the Baptist preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, that's a popular message. Finally, uh, there's Matthew 3 and then Matthew 11. All right, let's get to the last part of this. The chapter closes with yet another preview of the righteous reign of Christ, the king in his beauty. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will behold a far distant land. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? Anyway, they're going to be rescued from all the armies that are around them. And the majestic one, the Lord will be on their side. And all of the adjustments are going to be made to the territory of Israel, to the land of Jerusalem. Oh, there's a lot here. Your tackle hangs slack. We've got fishing terminology in verse 23. Uh, notice, though, I don't want to overlook this. Verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. What I find interesting here, not only does this chapter teach us about the king and his beauty, providing the undisturbed habitation, the peace that Israel has wanted for all these years. They're finally going to get it. They're going to get it from the Lord their God. They don't even have to bargain with Antichrist to get it. But we also have right here, we also have the passage that our founding fathers adapted when they realized, wait a minute, we need to separate out the judicial, legislative, and executive authorities. We can't put uh, judicial, legislative, and executive authority in the hands of one man unless that one man is Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. And so they divided out those powers. You can read more on that if you'd like in Federalist Papers and the writings of the, of the Founding Fathers. But there's the verse. 
The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for Isaiah. Thank you for a prophet that uh, spoke so long ago, and yet his message is applicable today. I ask that we would learn these lessons. I ask that we not be fearful of the destroyer, but that we be uh, faithful in patiently waiting for our Savior. That, that Father, we would be ones who, like, uh, like we read this morning, we would be patiently waiting for your Son to be revealed, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. Now, Father, thank you for this day. Might today be the day that our Savior descends with a shout to call us home. Thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.